Hi, ever wonder what it's like to work another profession or live in the underworld? Listen to Unsuspecting Riders give a 10 to 15 minute personal masterclass as I spontaneously interview them as they enter my taxi. I'm your host, Simon Rushton, and this is Taxi Chronicles. Morning, morning, morning. Yes, we're back with another episode, another radar. Today we have Abyss, and he's interesting guy. He's a lawyer, and he's going to tell us what it's like to be a lawyer and the route he got there. But before that, we're asking some other questions. It's nice to have you here today, Abyss. If you grab that, thank you. Just hold that around there. That's the microphone. So, Abyss. Yes. Tell us, what kind of person were you when you were in school? Well, first of all, hello. Hello. It is a pleasure to to be in this random spontaneous opportunity for dialogue. <laughs> I hope I hope your viewers are more expected and are uh, acclimatized well to this the show. I for sure I'm going to subscribe when the time comes. Don't you worry about that. And and again, thank you for picking me up as well. My journey. It's okay. Now then, I was a good kid. I was a good well well. I'm from South London. We've already spoken about this. And you need no one is a. In that upbringing, no one remains a good kid for the whole for the whole time, but you have to kind of learn how to get by. So I would say I learned how to get by quite quickly. Um, did all right with my grades. Obviously got into law school, so that helped. Um, but we've all got a few scraps and scars on the journey. I'm sure you have as well, and it's part it's part of the fun, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Mm-hmm. So, when did you realise you wanted to be a lawyer, and why? Uh, what well, it's difficult. I didn't realize I wanted to be study law until about two months before I decided to study law, and for the duration of my studies in law, I didn't want to be a lawyer. I just wanted the knowledge of the law mm-hmm. to find some way of using it. My whole thing was, if we do, if we arm ourselves with knowledge, we can answer those who want to enforce rules on us. And if those rules are unjust, the more knowledge we have, the better equipped we are to represent our rights. <laughs> I don't think I do. I like it. it. I like it. This, I don't think you need to be a lawyer. Anyone can do that. The more you gain knowledge and open your mind up for different you know, sources of knowledge, the, the better ready you are to know when your rights are being infringed. Anyone can do this and should do this. I only realised that I should become a lawyer after I finished studying law and went to join a law firm. It was one of those corporate um, commercial ones in London where... So wait a minute, you studied the whole law Yeah. and then you thought, yeah, I might as well become a lawyer now. <laughs> <laughs> Can, so can I ask you something? Mm. Did you, your parents influence you um, studying law? No, no, it was a surprise to them as well that I was studying law because we were discussing a long time that what do I like, what do I enjoy, something you know in the social um, sciences, something practical, but it, it didn't really fit piece together until it, it made sense to study law. Um, I was I was choosing between law, between politics, between. Uh, historical religion and like a bunch of topics it, it wasn't clear mm-hmm. so no I got no pressure from them I got a lot of support from them and I continue to, to get to get support from them um, it's also a journey for them because they've I'm the first lawyer in the family and so their experiences I'm going through which are quite new for them as well but I think it's healthy because what experiences are those well this job means I have to travel quite a lot and I'm a homeboy in me I don't like to leave home a whole lot but since I you know, since I started this my first role in, in, in the legal tradition, I've been 
you know, working in Greece, in refugee camps, in Calais. I'm a human rights lawyer, so it means oh, I have to go to certain locations. Just now I came back from Greece and Lebanon, and, and I, I don't like to be away from home for too long. But, so that's been an adjustment. But then you serve in a purpose. It gives me intense happiness. Yes. But I also see the cost-benefit of every decision now. Because the more I'm doing it, the more I know what I can gain and what I don't gain. And there's something about quality time with your family that maybe lockdown's given us more insight, but it's a very precious and valuable thing. Mm. And I don't want to undervalue it in my pursuit to run around the world and, 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 and have this fun and this journey, which is rather amazing. I don't want to neglect the little things, which made me who I am. Mm. Do you come from a large family, lots of siblings? My, my actual core family is just three of us, but it belongs to a, a, a strand. mum and dad? No, no, mum, dad and three kids. Okay. But more cousins than, than you and I have collective fingers, you know, more more extended cousins and people I don't know I'm related to than you would imagine and, and than I know. So it is a large family, but my actual core family is, is a small, quite, quite, um, quite ordinary. So what's been the thing that you've learnt that you wish you knew when you started in law? Mm. I think so I think it would be the way that I relate to my clients, people I work for um, I, I work very heavily in the kind of destitution like organized like environment so when I'm in London recently I had a contract in Wandsworth for about a year and a half working with the homeless population in, in the borough and when I when I'm on site I'm on visits I'm usually in refugee camps or places where there's like the jungle in Calais very disorganized places with a lot of poverty or the Greek islands these kind of places where you don't get organization but what you do get are people and stories and you get cases and the, the, the aim of people like me going there is if we identify a legal group for these people, we might make their lives a little bit less um, less intolerable, a little bit less filled with suffering. But of course, it's you know we try, but we're facing quite large systematic issues. What in answer to your question, what I wish I had learned earlier was to trust the people that I work for and listen to the lived experience, because quite often they will know more about the systems than we're enforcing, because they've been through the systems a lot, mm. or they'll know more about, um, for example, what what country is best for them. If you just give them the options and explain the different details, they'll be able to inform you what is best for them. Are these the clients that you're talking to or your work colleagues? These are the clients I'm talking to. These are people who I'm doing their cases for them. So they're saying they want to go, I don't know, to, if they're in Calais, they usually want to come to England. Yeah, right? for Calais that's usually the case. But you're saying... You may say, well, why don't you go to Sweden? It's not like that. It's more about where do they have a case? It's not where shall I send them? It's do they have a case already there, like a family member there, for example? Or have they been there before and were they deported? So we're not we're not encouraging a regular entry. But if they say, by the way, I've got a child in, in Spain, then it's like, well, then you could do a family reunification case using these procedures and that could work for you. But what, what I wish I had learned was to start off not asking Sorry, the wrong questions. If they're in Calais, mm. assuming they come from southern part of the equator, they've passed Spain on the way to get here. But then you're, then people, I'm a bit confused. People can be in a place like Calais or the Greek islands for a number of reasons. It's not just because they've made their way north. Many of them have been around different countries and tried to live a life and got deported. Ah, okay. Things like that. All right. 
the most the most thing I the thing I keep seeing is people who have had lives and started lives in European countries, but because they didn't know about their rights, they found themselves deported and not able to appeal it. And they show the papers, and they should have appealed it and gone back home. But then they find themselves having to leave. And places, one of the features of Europe is that it makes its kind of external borders really packed. So you've seen these pictures of crowded refugee camps. You've seen pictures of Calais. You've seen pictures of Lesbos. It's because they're all forced there so that Europe doesn't have to deal with all of them at one go. So they, they, they put them into a corner. It's a tactic that discriminated people are quite familiar with. And in them is when they have these cases that you have to ask and learn about. Otherwise, you'd never know. You'd never know that they could easily go back to Spain or Portugal if they submit the right kind of appeal. Okay. So that's what I mean. I wish I was a better listener from the beginning, mm. but I have I have given it more appreciation now. What are their rights? Out of curiosity. Well, according to and obviously Brexit does make things a bit more complicated for the UK because the law is always changing from our side. But according to general humanitarian law, the first safe country you're in, you have a right to claim asylum. And every um, every individual has the right to claim asylum in whatever country they want, to, they want to apply in. I mean, that's their right. If they are fleeing persecution or fleeing danger or harm, or they believe they have a case for protection in one of in, a, in another country, they have the right to at least apply. And the country can look at their merits, their, their case, and judge by the merits and decide if they're going to grant them papers or not. In addition to that, it's not just the case that you have to apply in the first country you get, you have the right to. Many people might have family in another country and think, well, I want to apply there and live with my family. Mm -hmm. They might think that, you know, for my nationality, there's a very low acceptance rate in this country because in European countries, there's a big disparity in where you're going to get papers. It makes no sense because it's supposed to be one block, but it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a, very skewed environment to build a life. You won't find stability unless you, you know. So they go to certain specific countries for certain locations. Algerians and Moroccans might want to go to France, for example. Yeah, because they're connected. Right, and then throw in the colonial history. So then you've got certain ties to certain countries which have existed before these people were born, and like they have existing communities there. Indians and Pakistanis in the UK, for example. North Africans in France is an example. Um, and you have these, these spots around Europe. And so then they go to those places and, and, and their rights are that they can, they can apply asylum in any of these countries. Now if they're rejected, that's the country's right to reject them. But what we're seeing now is they don't even let them apply anymore. Really? It's this thing called pushback, which means a person comes over a border and they say they want asylum and the country will push them over and say you're not allowed to claim it over here for reasons X, Y and Z. It's a highly illegal practice, it happens a lot. And it's something the UK is trying to make law now because they no longer have European legislation blocking them from it. I don't want to get too political, but we're going to see a lot of people who should be at least allowed to try have a life here, not even allowed to make the first step. That's very interesting, and it, it brings me back to what you said about that. What was that quote that you said at the beginning? About when I said, why do you want to be a lawyer? Mm. Um, said something it's about knowledge yeah about knowledge yeah that, the, that really when we equip need ourselves to know the law, yeah. regardless of who you are what you do you need to know the law did you specifically want to go into the human rights law because it seems like it's your baby it's not what i specialized in the beginning so so ironically no i mean i knew it was it was where all the good stuff happens but i first started went into employment and I thought that, well, if I learn about, you know, the worker and the worker's rights in, in the workplace, mm -hmm. when, when, it, when it looks like the employer is acting in, in obstruction of their rights or, or ripping them off or something like that, 
I can work for the kind of firm which represents them and, and, and claims their rights, which was a good place. It's, it's, a good, it's an important law mm-hmm. and field of law, but it wasn't where... That environment was not where I felt I was doing the most impact. Can I ask you, as an Uber driver, mm-hmm. there's that big case, I don't know if you know of about Of course, it. there's a massive case. Did you... Ha- I was very reluctant about, like, we shouldn't be um, appealing because we knew the deal when we signed up. Mm. Uh, we're self-employed and also I think the, the government's playing the, the long game where they're trying to get us all on PAYE so you can't run a lot of expenses through. Yeah. But obviously since then, and then it's all the court cases, what it is, Ubers have to fork out money to give you back that holiday money and all the rest of it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's great. I, that's not a bad idea. How do you feel? I don't know if you followed the case. What do you think? Do you think these people had a case? Do you, what was the... I, I understand why the case was made. And like, and it's not just in the UK, it's in, it's in a number of countries. So, so I, I appreciate that. There were two things which came to me in my mind when I was reading through the judgment um, or the court report. The first one was on um, proof of employment. So for example, you, you're, you might be technically registered as self-employed. But if you need to prove that you work for Uber, can will they print for you a license, agree, an agreement of some sort, or a, a contract of some sort that you can use to evidence this? Okay, but um, don't we? I think we do. We have some. We have a group to. We sign something to say we have a partnership with them, and that's on the onboarding process. From what I remember, it's been a long time ago. Yeah. So I, I mentioned that because one what. what if a person is in employment but can't prove it, and I remember reading that so there's something wrong with the partnership agreement, something in the wording which implied the person could or couldn't work for them, it wasn't clear. And the reason why it wasn't clear was because of the larger case hadn't, hadn't been answered. It was that, how do you, that was Richard Branson looking past. Really? <laughs> it looked a lot like him. Okay. <laughs> um, a little shout out to your listeners that we just saw. We, a lookalike of, a lookalike of okay. Richmond. I doubt he's walking the like streets. I can say, he wouldn't be walking with no bodyguards. Ryan and Battersea on his own, actually. No, he, let's clarify. I saw a man who looks like Richard Branson. It wasn't him. Um, <laughs> but uh, so proof of employment, I think, really important. And I found it. I found that issue difficult. It's not the main issue, but that's one that I found. And the other one was whether or not Uber drivers feel like they're work that they're being exploited, or they can be exploited in this role. Yeah, because the rates can go down and up as uh, however they feel. Right. And that is a problem. Um, you can see from a distance. You drive from one air, from point A to B this month, and three months later, you're you're getting less than you would have before. And that's not based on the the demand process. That's demand based on them trying to increase their cut or yeah. whatever or that kind of stuff or shareholders but it's really interesting what you do you're, you're throughout your time in uni mm. so let's just go back a bit for the younger listeners who maybe want to follow in your footsteps because your story is really inspirational thank you how many GCSEs did you get and what subjects oh I don't remember I think I got 12 or so you got 12 C's and above? Yeah. So you got your math, English and science? Yeah, all the basics. Okay, yeah. so you got your basics. And then you went on to... A-level. A-levels. Mm-hmm. What subjects did you do? I did English, government politics and philosophy and religious studies. I did four. Whoa. And you got C's and above in all of those? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> no, but listen, listen. I'm, I'm not, I'm not. It's, it's. My parents paid a lot for tuition. My parents woke me up in the mornings to go. My parents and my school like pushed me. And if you don't have, you need the support system around you to push a kid. And there, there is something as, as being as pushing too far. For example, eleven plus. Pro, I don't know if you've got kids, but the eleven plus process. Like when I see the way that parents prep their kids for it, it seems like torture. But, but that's that's sometimes what it takes and not every child is capable of that and not every child should go through that but it's a, it's a system it's not about just the talent of the child it's it's the support system around you so i say i didn't have a i was almost prepared for this lifestyle because my parents put a lot of work into me mm. um, and i and i would encourage parents to to think about their options as well would you do the same with your children i would i would but not in the same way because i've seen kids who parents are doing the same thing that happened to my kid, to me, but those kids, it's not, it's nothing about capability actually. It's just that they wouldn't, they, it wouldn't be a positive place for them in, in, a, in a tough school or a grammar school or an academy or a, or a, they'd be better in a place where they can be more creative, for example, or a place oh, where they, they, they shouldn't be part of that pressure because it might not be right for their, for their well-being. Like kids are different. And yeah, you have to tap in. Are they a creative child? Exactly. How yeah. do they learn? What kind of learner are they? These kind of things. Maybe they're better off in sports. I agree. And yeah. then, and then, why are we using a very narrow educational model to judge a child? You know. So, so I, I think I'd be, I'd be the same if, if, if I thought that the, that's what the child wants, but not once. Sorry, if that's what would be best for the child. But I would not judge that child based on if they get into a good school or good or good grades alone. It'd be more, more than that. But hey, it's hypothetical. I've not got a kid, so. <laughs> so I love the way you just threw that in. Mum, Dad, yeah, I've not got a kid. No, it's this more. This taxi driver is trying to incriminate me. Honest, honest, I'm gonna get him after him. He's got no stars and no. Uh, it's, it's more that I don't want to like speak in a very general way, which people might not relate to if they've actually got kids, because I've not experienced it. I'm just saying what it looks like from from the but outside. But it makes sense, and, and you're speaking to a man with four kids, so I understand what you're saying, and. Um, being a person who I can do academic but I do like the sports and the, the kind of robust things and I'm reasonably good with my hands in decorating and making stuff so, yeah yeah I understand what you're saying wholeheartedly so you went from uh, obviously college you did your four A-levels you went to uni what did you learn in uni well, I did a straight law. I did a law, law with international politics. That was my. It was a law degree, but I studied politics with it. Was that a big eye opener when the international politics started? It was. So it it was good. The way I studied it, they focus on international relations, which I had not studied before. But I'm always interested in global news, and just like all of us are following what's happening in the world. But what that does is it gave a new language to describe world events that I didn't have before. When you say international relations, can you, uh, what relations are we talking about? Just how countries get on or? International relations, although it sounds like a very transferable term, it's, it's a very specific way of interpreting um, global politics. There are a set number of theories that international relations um, theorists have come up with to describe why the states behave a certain way, why the countries act a certain way. Are they acting out of self-interest? Acting out of cooperation? Are they realist? Are they determinist? These kind of you know different theoretical groups, and these things they're just theories. But what it means is I can now apply them back to to the situation, like real politics. These kind of phrases, and try and understand global leaders or do foreign policy analysis and try and 
it, it's just building up the the resources we have to understand the world because mm-hmm. it's chaotic enough as it is so that's what that said interesting i was better at that stuff than the law side while studying it I, my grades are better in it i enjoyed it more i was doing better at it mm-hmm. but I, it was not practical it was just interesting theory at the time unless i was going to go into policy mm. which i'm not ready for yet if you could do everything all again would you would you do it all the same mm. probably i i'm st- i'm not finished yet so i'm not i'm not ready to say if, if this was a good or bad choice so far it's it's i'm grateful for what this my decisions have given me um, my master's after my degree was gave me a lot. Got a master's as well. Yeah, I did right. a master's from the LSC. You just picked me up just from there now. Like, I did a master's there in in political theory. N N S C. LSC. LSC. Yeah. London. London School of Economics and Political Science. I did po- I did politics there or political theory. Okay. And that gave me a lot. But I, like weirdly, I I have learned. I don't know if if like because I've done what two degrees now. I, I now no longer think a degree represents knowledge. <laughs> it, it just represents capability. Right? It represents qualification, but not, not capability. Like, there are people who I might study alongside who aren't that capable, but have found a way to get onto these programs. And then there are some who have, who have not got academic backgrounds at all, but I trust their wisdom much more than any any grad student because they have experience for example yeah, because they have life experience and and like i i cannot i can't devalue life experience and i'm grateful that studying more has given me that I, ironically it's the very thing you're like you're studying to get more knowledge but you don't need to go to university or go do a master's or do these things to get knowledge you just need you need something of a plan that you make for yourself and i guess university a module gives you a plan for how to study but we can do that for ourselves and all, almost all the books I have studied in, at least my undergraduate, are all free and available. And like, you can get them anywhere in a library or online. So then why can't people incorporate these into their own personal habits? They weren't that hard to study. Why can't they? So I'm very skeptical of the educational institutions right now, but I'm also grateful for what they've given me in terms of opportunity. They've given me a lot. You hear about Google and Apple were saying you don't need a degree to work for them now. <laughs> How yeah. do you feel about that? Well, didn't both of their founders drop out of university as well? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe it's a, it's a token thing. But I would assume that many of their employees are really highly qualified technic- technical specialists and things like that. Yeah, I suppose the top... I don't know, it's interesting because you could say the top people who may have degrees and what have you in their company, the organisation, yeah. have degrees in the masters or whatever, but then you've probably got some people at home who are really geeked out, real tech guys, mm. and never gone to higher education, but are really good at the thing. And they, maybe what they're saying is that guy, that guy who's just been a hacker and talked to himself, we will give you a job. Because you've had that experience of just doing stuff. Yeah. And doing stuff on your own. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I get it. I get what the message they're trying to put across. I, I hope it, I hope something like that's implemented in other fields as well. Where, like? Where? Well... Certainly not in medical field. <laughs> but mind you, but that's how, if you think about it, that's how medicine really starts off, isn't it? It yeah. starts off with people trying stuff at home. This works, that works. Because if, because with big pharmaceutical companies, where they back uh, some research at Cambridge University, yeah. That's um, 
anything that's not profitable to them, they dismiss even if it's good. Mm. Yeah, not medicine. I'd like to mention now that myself and the Taxi Chronicles do not endorse any unregistered surgeries performed outside of hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy, man. I like this. Guy. If you have an illness, please call call the relevant authorities. If you have symptoms, present yourself in the correct way, and stay safe and wear a mask and all that. So, um, but but other jobs too, and it's not just jobs. It's also how we view each other, how we judge each other. It's like I mean, look at almost all of our political leaders have come through either Oxford or Cambridge, mm-hmm. or through Eton. a private school like Eton. Mm-hmm. And let's mention you don't need to, you need to be rich and in the right circles to get into Eton. You don't need to be very capable. And look at the produce that pretty much proves my point. I think that we need to change how we view competence and 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 mm-hmm. authority as well. Mm. It is an experience. If we have an experienced person running for office, and then we have a person who's come through the conventional educational and, and lifestyle routes this country is more likely to vote for the conventional one and not trust the experience and it's also the people in the medical field um, the people who like was the head of medicine or whatever for England mm-hmm. he he does not value the medical staff and what they do well look at how tiny the pay rise was for the staff clearly he has it no wasn't even a pay rise it was a devalue isn't it 1% pay rise and 1.7% tax you actually lost out 0.7% tax. Yeah. And you save somebody, you know, somebody who's meant to be important in life. You start looking at it and think, maybe we should have just let him swung. You know? Yeah, I believe you. I believe you. I've seen it. And, and at some point, I don't know when, but they'll have to answer for how they've treated essential workers and NHS staff throughout this time. I mean, we can very well call them heroes, but treat them like, like criminals and victims. And I hope the time comes where, where they get recognition, like true recognition for what they've done for this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an example. Look at how look at the respect that's given to a nurse as a person, but not really for their like for their academic achievement or for their like if a society you shouldn't have to get a student loan no. to become a nurse. Another good point. Another good point. And if if we do live in a society where we value people based on salary and things like that. Clearly, society doesn't even value these people. They value, you know, people in, in in the insurance and banking industries much more. If we do live in that society, so whatever way you look at it, we are not giving credit where it's due. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you come to office, I mean, you'll change these things. Right? You'll you'll make these changes. This <laughs> podcast is getting you I'll ready probably, for policy. I'll probably be a dictator. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> I'll be what the French Revolution, where you execute everybody else. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> who who, who uh, was the old regime to start again? Yeah, then we have a new renaissance, and we'll you know we'll we'll do this thing properly this time. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting because then you realise that it's like a regime change. Obviously, we're well. This is still human rights. It's dealing yeah. with Iraq, you know, you change the regime there, uh, rightfully or wrongly. I think it was wrong, and. Um, my dissertation was on why it was illegal. Sorry? My dissertation was on why, on how the Iraq war was illegal. Yeah, Tony Blair should have been held accountable for yeah. that. And in fact, when the, the Chilcot Inquiry, which, was, which is what I studied for the paper. The what inquiry? The Chilcot Inquiry. This was the big one which was meant to expose all the ones who acted illegally for it. And everyone thought that it might have at least something incriminating for Tony Blair or something about his government or whatever. And I went through all eight volumes. It might have been, I think it was over a thousand words. I don't remember exactly how long it was. And they, like, it, 
you almost think these the system is made in such a way these people can't really get in trouble. There's no, always it someone. Wasn't in there. It just wasn't in there. They, they mentioned statements he had made, but it, it was so hard to use that as evidence for a new for a case against them. Did they mention this statement? Bush, the Americans want a uh, what? What's his name? Americans want a war, and I'm going to give it to them. Did they mention that statement? Um, that was made in a news. No, that was made in a meeting at Downing Street, I think. Yeah, you know how I know. <laughs> Were you I'm there? Ex- uh, no, I'm ex-military, and the guy I used to work with sounds a bit like a pub story. The guy I used to work with, uh. who's on the ship, he's an older guy than me, he's like 60-something. Yeah. His brother used to fight with the Mujahideen. In Afghanistan? He, yeah, in Afghanistan. He's a British guy, he's SAS. Yeah. And um, he, um, he um, wrote a paper on how to deal with the Afghan and uh, you can't, you can't buy, you can't, you can rent an Afghan, but you can't buy them. And if you want to come into the country, you've got to work with each individual warlord or drug lord. Mm-hmm. It was that tribal then. Yeah, yeah. you can't work with, it still is, you can't just work with one head. Yeah. It's not like a European system and impose like that. They don't think or operate like that. So he wrote this paper and he explained that also you need helicopters. Mm-hmm. You need like what they had the French Huey helicopters that they use in Vietnam War. You need those to ferry troops safely from one place to another instead of going by road. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a really good paper. Lots of politicians read it. And there's they all came to a meeting, the same meeting, and um, said, yeah, we've got this paper. You know, someone who's been in uh, Mujahideen for 10 years, etc., etc." And Blair just went, rip, rip the paper, and that's where he said that famous line. Oh, that was the context for it. Yeah, context for it. He said, the Americans, I don't care what this says. Oh, so, they, so, so that statement was made but, specifically for the uh, for the uh, invasion for the of Afghanistan? Yeah. Not Afghan- for Iraq? Yeah, for Afghanistan, not for Iraq. Ah, I see. So then it was before. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And, and it makes sense, because almost all of, I can't say almost all, but a lot of the statements I looked at were were Blair responding back to Bush all the kind of pro-war things and and often Bush's ones were responding back to his advisors and they were responding back to the advice of um, of like Bush senior so Blair's not Blair was never the architect of these plans he was just an extremely opportunistic young leader yeah he's giving um, Bush opportunities isn't it like it's interesting how because in, people often speak about the value of Britain now if it's, it's as important as it used to be in the global events and things like that especially since when Britain used to run the world and, and that almost uh, I wonder what's the negative of mythical uh, nightmarish time of colonialism but never before has it has the UK has, has Great Britain had such an important decision to make than supporting the war in Iraq because there was a point where if they would have rejected it would have not gone through. The yeah, America, Americans don't fight on their own. They don't, and they and the whole claim for having support for this was that they had because they didn't have the UN support at the time. Yeah. That's the point. But they thought we have a unilateral agreement amongst nations of the UN who support us. And those were paid people. You could bribe the dictators or the leaders of the day, and all those kind of things. Yeah, and imagine we had a leader who just said no and said just because almost like what's that film? Is it Hugh Grant in Love Actually? No, not that one. The one where 
It is, where he just says no to the Americans because he accidentally falls in love with his secretary. Forget the falling in love with the secretary part, but if we have a leader who comes to the public and just says, no, I will not follow the larger country because my principles don't allow it. If we that's have leaders like that. That's the Venezuelan government where they tried, there's a documentary called Economical Hitman. And you, you'll probably really like this. And he, he's an ex-CI. Uh, I've read the book. It's um, Pink Pinkman or something, or Pink Pinker. I haven't read the book. I've seen the, some yeah. of the documentary. It's on YouTube. And he says, you go to a dictator, to a CIA operative, and you say to him, or a leader of a, a developing country, and you say, listen, we need you to do this. And then they say, no. And you say, oh, well, we can do this for you, no. Then they try it, and then they say, "Okay, listen, we'll give you this amount of money, we'll give you that amount of money, what have you." Yeah. And then this the Venezuelan leader just said, "No, you can't bribe me. I'm here for my people." Exactly. Yeah, it was about the oil. Mm. They wanted him to up the prices of oil, or whatever it was. Yeah. And he said, "No, I don't need to. I've got loads of oil. I can give it to my people for cheap, and I can give it up to people for a reasonable price." Mm -hmm. And um, and then, then the man said, "Listen, I've told you once, I've told you this twice." next time it won't be me coming to tell you it'll be somebody else and that's when the leader said i'll probably end up dead something and he was assassinated by the americans as usual mm -hmm. so they get down um in that respect so last but not least we're at the end of the run it's been a very interesting conversation it's been my pleasure what's the impact you want to have on the world there's a lot of um resistance movements, revolutionary movements, a lot of great positivity responding to this strange world we've inherited, which is filled with, you know, ideas that are that are harmful to the human spirit and are actually against how we have been created. And I want that whatever I do just to contribute to that discussion. It, it might be a voice, it might be a... I don't know what my legacy will be, but I just want to be... I want to be valuable to that side of people who believe in hope and believe in implementing it. Even if the odds are an entire system which restricts it from people, we'll still give it and, and we won't give up because that's not how we were raised or created um, and that's not that's not how we live. Mm. Okay. Do people ever ask you this question at the end of the discussions? No, because I'm interviewing people, but I, no, I think I've been asked once, but I know what the impact, I want to help the orphans. Mm. I come from children's homes so I want to help all the young children and I eventually set up a an orphanage but with also uh, skills so you're not just being looked after you're taught basic life skills from building methods to sewing to things like that yeah and to computer skills but i'm not a computer person but that that's the that's the community you want to help that is that yep. um, yeah that's what it's about for me yeah well that's beautiful and that's important and and i, I really wish you the best in that in fact, that's the kind of thing where everyone's success is tied with, with that kind of project. Yeah, because more people are happier and better in life, the more things work work out. Yeah. Mm. Well, but that was great. May God be with you for your journey, my friend. Thanks a lot and much appreciated. We hope you liked that interview. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe to get the latest daily episodes. Ever considered investing in the continent with the fastest growing economy and population on Earth? The same continent that holds 30% of the world's known natural resources? Then listen to our sister podcast, Africa Investor Stories, 
where you will hear real investors with real stories from around the world share their experience of investing in Africa. We post Monday and Thursday at 10am.